Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Scoop. I'm your host, Frank Chaparro, Director of Special Projects at The Block and host of The Scoop. I want to apologize for a bit of the hiatus that we've been on. Hopefully you're still reading and following The Scoop newsletter, so you've been able to keep in touch with some of my thoughts and escapades over the past few weeks. But we're, we're back and we have a very exciting guest joining us on the other side of the mic, Mr. Matt Hogan. Sir, over at Bitwise, we were just down in Miami for the Exchange ETF conference. We missed each other, so I figured I'd get you on the show to touch base on everything that has been happening in this crazy asset management corner, uh, the crypto corner of the asset management world. It, um, it was interesting. I mean, I can we can maybe start there just because it was you know last week and there was a lot of energy around crypto. There were. Uh, there was representation from all of the issuers, um, but like I said before, we turned on the mics. I think it. I think it's good to have this conversation, sort of a few weeks uh, or a month or so out uh, from the from the debut of these of these new funds to really get a sense of of the growth, where the interest is coming from, and and what the future maybe holds. So let's sort of just start. Um, let's just start there. Uh, was. I know. So, for folks who maybe are unfamiliar, it's not really a. It's more of a where the issuers and the market makers and, and some of the banks get together. Not so much a, a place where we maybe find some financial advisors. So you don't really get a good sense of what what, what they're thinking. We can get to that later. But um, it seemed like there was a lot of excitement around uh, the ETF, and and now, uh, I mean, at at the very least, it was the first time it, uh, where you had sort of. Bitcoin ETFs uh, <laughs> trading. So what was the dynamic like for you? Yeah, well, you know, for starters, thanks for having me on. Really excited to be on the pod. This is really fun. Um, it was night and day from a year ago. You know, I've been going to this conference forever. There's always been an ETF conference down in Florida and Miami in early, early part of the year. And a year ago, there was literally no one talking about Bitcoin ETFs. I think there was no official session. I did a session because a panel dropped out and they were, I was the only person they could find to fill in who was willing to talk. But other than that, Bitcoin wasn't on the agenda last year. And everyone thought it was ridiculous, for instance, that I'd left a long career in ETFs many years ago to move into crypto. This year, it's like they all forgot that happened. Everyone was really excited. Um, you know, everyone has been long Bitcoin since the jump. And um, there was just a lot of excitement. It, sort of one important dynamic, which is obvious but bears stating, is it's no longer just crypto native firms there talking about Bitcoin. It's BlackRock. It's Invesco. It's the largest asset managers in the world. So there was a huge amount of excitement, huge amount of anticipation. People felt good that the ETFs had launched and were trading well, you know, a real testament to the ETF wrapper. Uh, and people were pleasantly surprised by the volume. It was just a great event to be at. Yeah, I can, I certainly echo that. One, one funny um, aspect for me was just the fact that um, I, I try to go to quite a few uh, traditional finance conferences that, you know, crypto is at the peripheral of, of the attendees, the sponsors, and, and the speakers. Um, and most of them fall within more of the market structure trading realm. And those folks like on the whole, like 
increasingly take crypto seriously, but they still view the participants as sort of uh, sophomoric um, in nature. And then certainly after the FTX thing, just like lampoon the the heck out of crypto people. This conference, I didn't get that sense at all. I mean, like it was like just in the, you're in the asset management space, not me in particular, but someone like you. Um, well, definitely someone like you, given your background. But these, they, they, there was no jokes. There were no FTX jokes. There were no crypto people are degen jokes. It was just like you are a financial services professional. And uh, the one funny anecdote that I'll share was um, everyone was super interested. In, and there was this one woman uh, at a traditional asset management firm who was very excited to chat with me and uh, shared her. She had been in the industry for, you know, 30, 40 years. And she's very senior. She hands me her card and she goes, this was my old title. Uh, we're, we're tacking crypto on to the end of it or or digital assets. So I just thought, I just, you know, that was just sort of emblematic of like this broader um, um, sense that I had ab about how crypto is uh, being viewed. It, it's really amazing. I mean, it's really 180. Uh, it's hard to contextualize how different it was from even a year ago. And you can see that continuing, right? Just a few days ago, uh, a banking industry association put out a strong letter saying, let us custody Bitcoin. You know, a year ago, they wouldn't touch it with a 10-foot pole. And it really was remarkable. Uh, and I think it's it's probably just beginning. You're going to get more people tacking digital assets onto their business card. And I think that's great. You know, come on in. Uh, the water's fine. I welcome all those people coming. The one point that Eric Belchunas made when I saw him... Um out at the Fontainebleau um, was so all the things we're talking about, Matt, like sort of the, the, this um, sentiment, it, it might not have been as palpable um, had BlackRock and Fidelity not entered the game. That sort of, uh, you can't really laugh at them if, if, if uh, for lack of a better sort of, um, you, you can't, you know, if they're doing something, you can't really lampoon it because they are, the behemoths. That's exactly right. Yeah. I mean, BlackRock. BlackRock is the largest, world's largest asset manager. And it's converted from crypto skeptic to fully on board, right? Uh, Larry Fink called Bitcoin an index of money laundering just a handful of years ago. And now he has a multi-billion dollar Bitcoin ETF. And they're very serious about Bitcoin and crypto. I don't think it's a... Um, a fake conversion. I think they're real converts into the possibility of public blockchains and what crypto can do. And you're right, you can't laugh at them. You'll still have holdouts. You'll still have Vanguard. You'll still have ideological holdouts. But the center is moving to embrace and accept Bitcoin and crypto as just part of the asset management world, like any other asset. And, you know, broadly speaking, that's wonderful and, uh, and says good things about where we're going. When you reflect back, what do you think was the catalyst for their entrance into the market? Obviously, I'm sure, uh, I think it's been, I think it's been talked about publicly. I think Scaramucci shared it or something, um, about Larry Fink's own personal, uh, conversion. But what do you think, um, what was it client driven? Do you reckon, or just the amount you can make on fees relative to other funds that push them into this space? Was it Maybe just what we saw in Canada, right? That probably got a lot of people who were not thinking of launching a Bitcoin fund 
to think about launching a Bitcoin fund. Mix of these things or, or do you have your own uh, thesis? I think it's it's a mix of all of those things. I think some some important people close to uh, to Larry Fink helped uh, push him in that direction. I think some internal people um, arguing uh, inside BlackRock gradually broadened that. And then the other thing we can't overlook is that the the ecosystem surrounding Bitcoin really has gotten exceptionally better over the last ten years, certainly over the last five years. And even over the last three years, right? So this this market really wasn't an institutional market five or ten years ago, right? The the futures market was all over the place. There wasn't a regulated futures market. There was huge basis between different trading venues. Arbitrage was a massive thing. It wasn't efficient. And I think as an outsider looking in, you could look at this market legitimately, you know, five or ten years ago and say it was a bit of a mess. And so part of the conversion is just crypto itself got better. We got high quality custodians, exchanges got better, uh, institutional market makers got better. And so I think that helped. And then you had these these personalities inside BlackRock agitating for it. But it's it's part and parcel of a broader story, right? The whole world is going from crypto skeptic to accepting its place in the world. And BlackRock was just a little earlier than most, but you got to give them credit. They did it. It's a good point that you make because it's 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 a it's a bit of a I don't know if chicken and egg is the right uh, phrase, but if you didn't have the right if you didn't have enough or robust enough authorized participants, custodians, exchanges, even if inside BlackRock you were keen to launch an ETF, might not have been um, possible or as appealing without those different components being in place. Obviously, we, we've been in this for a month. I think one of the, um, obviously, you you uh, tweet about this a lot, the Bitcoin obituaries. And I think the media was very quick to uh, jump to the conclusion that this was a sort of paltry um, debut, um, especially given the pressure maybe that GBTC uh, selling had on the market. Um, and there were a lot of folks that were, uh, sounding the alarms over Bitcoin being down off off the highs pre-launch by 20% and how it was going to scare every boomer from ever investing in Bitcoin and crypto ever again, um, which obviously now it is completely different. Um, but how important do you think it is that we didn't stay down um, for quite some time after uh, the the launch and that you know at least as of last week, most people who would have bought it would be in the green? is. Is that something that you feel like it was? It, it's important. I mean, with IPOs, right? You know, you, it kind of uh, it, it's kind of um, not great when they kind of trade down after the debut. Yeah, I, I think it's really valuable to the long term health of the ecosystem. More than anything, what I think it does is it accelerates the mainstreaming of these ETFs across the financial industry. Right, so. You know, it, what happens when you launch an ETF is at first, not everyone can buy it. Retail investors can buy it. Hedge funds can buy it. Independent financial advisors who run their own shop can buy it. But the people who work at large wirehouses like Morgan Stanley and Wells Fargo and UBS and even smaller platforms that aren't as familiar to most people but still manage $100 billion or huge chunks of money, they can't buy it because they have to do due diligence at the platform level to give it 
the Morgan Stanley approval and the UBS approval, right? There's like two tiers. And if prices had fallen and stayed down, that process would have taken a while because what drives that process is a Morgan Stanley advisor calling the home office and saying, you need to give me exposure because my clients are asking for it. The fact that prices rebounded so quickly means that those advisors on the front lines are getting calls from their clients. Why don't I have exposure to this? The train is leaving the station. And so they're calling the home office and saying, can you guys put this at the top of the priority list? And you know, we're already winning multiple national account platforms here at Bitwise. I'm sure others are at other Bitcoin ETF issuers. And so the price rebound, I think, really compressed that. Uh, it really is is sort of catalyzing that and making that go faster. And that's going to be what kicks off the second wave of, of, of accelerated asset gathering that I think we'll see in a few months, uh, in a few quarters. It's a really, it's a really good point. Um, it, it kind of, this, this whole process of, um, you know, pe- people having access to the ETF is different from it existing, right? The, if, if, uh, if you, if you can't actually buy it through whatever broker or, or, or asset management firm that you're uh, signed up with, it, it's really for them, it's like it, the launch didn't even happen, um, to an extent. That's right. Um, that's right. Walk us through, how does it, so how do you then, um, there, there, you know, a line, uh, a long list of, of different banks, um, that will, that, you know, that are going to be able to offer these types of products to their clients. How does it work where if I'm an advisor, am I as the individual advisor deciding on which of these funds I'm going to pick, pick, or is it the client or, you know, is, um, I'm the, you know, maybe the senior advisor at Morgan Stanley, um, obviously these are the firms that don't offer, uh, their own fund. I imagine Fidelity reps are going to push Fidelity, um, to an extent, but how is it you taking a lot of these guys out to lunch? How does that <laughs> process work? How do they decide? Yeah. I mean, there, there, there are a couple levels, right? So usually the platform will evaluate and approve a select number of these ETFs. They're not probably going to put all 10 on their platform. Now, if an advisor has a client who calls up and says, I want XYZ ETF and the client asks for it, sometimes they can buy it. That's what's called uh, unsolicited, where it's coming from the client to the advisor. And usually, if you have well-functioning ETFs, they'll be available on an unsolicited basis. The key unlock is when that directionality reverses. When the advisor can call the client and say, you might want to consider 1% allocation to this ETF or this asset class. That's when the real flows happen because that's why people hire advisors, right? To help direct their portfolios, not to execute their ideas. Usually the way it works is platforms will approve two, three, or four of these ETFs on a solicited basis. And then it's up to the advisor to look, do I want this ETF? Do I want that ETF? Or do I want to make the smart decision and buy the Bitwise ETF, right? Which is what they should all uh, choose. But they'll do that based on brand, on expenses, on relationship, etc. At Bitwise, our role is twofold. One, we work at the national account level, which is with that platform. 
to help educate them about who Bitwise is and how our product is structured and why it works and why it should be one of those select ETFs that are on the approved list. And then we'll work with the advisors to educate them about Bitcoin, crypto, its role in a portfolio with the idea that that relationship will help them choose Bitwise from within this broader set. And if we do our job, then we we get our fair share of the assets on the platform. And, you know, we've been doing that before ETFs with our other products. And now we're accelerating that now that we're in this ETF era. And I'm sure each issuer is going to have their own story or, or narrative that they paint to potential clients and to these national platforms. Um, maybe we could juxtapose um, your firm with, with others, I think, uh, not, not that I, I'm not, you know, inside your team, but if I were selling it, I'd be selling it as the crypto native low fee all option. Um, Bitwise has been out th- at this since 2018. So um, relatively experienced in the crypto space and in designing these types of products. Um, how do you sort of uh, juxtapose that with maybe the BlackRock argument, which is, you know, we are the largest and uh, probably have the most respect on the street relative to these other players. And then maybe even the Grayscale um, story, which is uh, the the story, the narrative that they're, I mean, they they sort of, uh, uh, Diwali uh, pointed this out, I think, uh, on your panel, um, the most liquid and the most robust, uh, you know, if you want to really move size, uh, GBTC might be the product. Yeah, I love it. You know, you're you're welcome onto our sales team at any time, Frank. We're ready for you. Um, I think that's the message for us, right? We're uh, the lowest cost of the large liquid ETFs at 20 basis points. There's one ETF that's at 19 basis points, but very small. So we're the lowest cost. And investing, the less you pay, the more you keep. And we're specialists of this space, which matters in two ways. Um, one, it matters because we know how to trade and structure these products. And where that appears is in very real things that you can see on screen. You know, our ETF, because of the structure of our trading process, which was built on seven years of experience, trades at very small premiums to its net asset value, whereas some of the other issuers can trade at larger premiums, which could become discounts. Nothing like GBTC. We're talking about 20, 30 basis points. But still, that can matter when the fees are so low. It's still a big difference. So trading expertise. And then the other piece is just crypto expertise. You know, we're going to be invested in this market, thinking about this market, whether it's up, down, or sideways. And if you're an advisor who puts a client into a Bitcoin ETF today, uh, is your issuer going to be there to answer your questions in six months, in 12 months, in 24 months? Will they have a 60-plus person team that researches this um, every day that's in Washington talking to regulators, that's talking to you know, people in the crypto industry. So that's that's what we offer beyond sort of the crypto native piece of disclosing our Bitcoin address and uh, donating a portion of our proceeds to core developers. BlackRock's going to get its share, right? Some people want to go with the big BlackRock name and they're willing to pay a premium and they're willing to sort of uh, look past the fact that they're relatively new to this market. And I think that's great. You know, for some people, that's the right choice. My expectation is that some people will want a specialist, and hopefully Bitwise is the specialist they choose, and um, and they'll want a low-cost provider, which is the, 
the, the difference between Grayscale and us. Grayscale, of course, has been in this market for a long time as well. And uh, they very much know how to trade crypto assets. We're just a lower cost provider. Can you walk us through the trading aspect and what that means? Um, I'm sure it's not just a crypto uh, thing, right? How do you, what, what sort of needs to be in place to ensure that these assets are trading at net or close to net asset value? What needs to be done? Is it, you know, how does it, how does it function? How does it function? I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe, maybe it makes sense to like walk through what happens when we get creations on a daily basis. So, uh, you know, let's say it was the first day we got over $200 million in creation. What that means is $200 million shows up in, um, our bank account and we have to go out and buy $200 million worth of Bitcoin, right? The way we do it is we go into the market and we have relationships now with five or six over-the-counter trading counterparties. These are big institutional firms like Jane Street or DRW or Falcon X, et cetera. And we'll put them in competition with one another. We'll call up one and get a quote on 200 million. Then we'll call up another and see if they can come inside that and another and see if they can come inside that. And we'll finally get to the best available price. And you know, for what it's worth, we've been getting enormously great execution. I think even on that $200 million trade, I think that was one basis point over the marked price of the net asset value, which is amazing. So one one hundredth of a percent. Um, and that that tightness of trading versus the price is what allows it to trade close to its net asset value because that gets reflected into the premium. Some of the other issuers take a different approach to trading where they only trade through one counterparty and those counterparties can have additional costs. And you can see those premiums get slightly larger. Um, again, we're not talking about percents here. We're talking about 10 or 20 basis points, but that can be the same as a whole expense ratio. There are other nuances in terms of how we handle settlement that we think is more secure than maybe other approaches. We've tried to design every aspect of our approach to be absolute gold standard, but that process of putting multiple people at work to bid on our flow is really the um, sort of secret sauce uh, that's that's kept our fund trading so well. Sort of having the diversity of of liquidity providers there. On the custody side, how much of it is it a concern that, you know, we are kind of uh, relying on on really just one market participant there? Do you envision, um, you know, new folks coming in and and maybe um, sharing the, the burden that Coinbase has? Yeah, I think from a practical perspective, we feel enormously comfortable with Coinbase custody, right? They're the largest crypto custodian in the world. They're a state trust chartered separate entity, bankruptcy remote. They've been doing it for years. They custody a huge amount of assets. We feel enormously comfortable. But uh, we do think over time, there'll be a diversity of custodians, right? You have to imagine that you know these ETFs went to market relatively quickly not surprising that everyone coalesced around the market leader. But over time, as we move to a more mature setting, you'll see some issuers use multiple custodians. You'll see some issuers try to differentiate by using custodian X or custodian Y. If you look in the gold ETF space, to make an analogy, there are ETFs that only custody gold in Switzerland, because maybe that's more remote. 
um, you know, the ETF machine, uh, innovation machine is, is eternally hungry. So people will try this. I don't think there's much of a practical risk, but I do think from a marketing perspective, you're going to see people take on multiple custodians and spread that around. Let's maybe go back to the um, financial advisor bit, right? I think when a lot of people think about the potential of the Bitcoin ETF, it unlocks this market. Um, it's still very early, right? So do you have a sense of penetration into that community? And how do you envision um, what will that look like maybe uh, a, a year out? Um, because it's going to take some time um, for all these platforms to get ready. Um, what does it look like inside? I guess when you look at the flows that you're seeing, how, how much of it is coming from that community and how do you anticipate that growing? Yeah, great question. I mean, first, maybe just to set the stage, the way I think about the wealth market in the U.S., there are three big buckets. There's self-directed retail investors. Those are people managing their own portfolios. There's sort of financial advisors, wealth management, which is people who hire people to manage portfolios. And there's institutions, pensions, endowments, etc. If you look at the split of assets, self-directed retail is about 20%. And the other two buckets are about 40%. So when we talk about the ETF being a game changer, it's a game changer because that other 80% really can't, couldn't access crypto beforehand. A few of them could. They could do it in private funds. Maybe they did it directly with custodians. Maybe they invested through an app. But by and large, they were excluded from the market. So crypto went to you know a trillion plus, trillion and a half dollars on the back of 20% of the market. So this is a, a 4Xing of the market opportunity in the U.S. That's why it's so exciting. Um, in terms of initial flows, it's really hard in ETF land to say exactly where all of your flows are coming from. You find out in arrears uh, and imperfectly through the SEC's disclosure process over time, but it takes a while. I think a lot of these initial flows have been individuals, hedge funds, and a few RAs. RAs are independent advisors. Those are the flows that we can track, the RA flows. And I can tell you that they're happening. Every day, we have a sales channel where we itemize wins. And every day, there are multiple advisors around the country that are adding Bitcoin to their model portfolios or allocating to it in handfuls of client accounts. And those can be hundreds of thousands of dollars or millions of dollars. So those are happening. I still think that market is just getting going, right? Um, and maybe maybe to explain why, even if you're a pro-Bitcoin RIA who can buy these ETFs, the day they launch, you have to call your clients. Do you want to allocate? You have to set up a meeting. You have to talk through it. You have to make that allocation. It all takes time. So I think that that market is just going. My expectations when these launched is we would have initial demand, and then it would drop off, and then it would re-accelerate. We've had initial demand. It's held pretty steady. I think it'll still, I think there's still a leg upwards. I actually think we're not at the, the sweet spot of demand yet. Um, but I think it's coming in, in a few months or, or a few quarters. Got it. Um, so when, when you think about how these are being uh, incorporated into portfolios, do you have a sense based on maybe some of these sales conversations that you're happening, how advisors are, um, you know, uh, incorporating these things into their portfolios, what types of portfolios and to what extent, uh, 
are they incorporating them? Yeah, it's one to two and a half percent. Those are the numbers that I hear. Um, I have an expectation over time that could swing to two and a half to five percent. That's where I think this will settle out for financial advisors. But initially, it's one to two and a half percent. They're allocating in not every client's account, but in many. So let's say an advisor has a hundred clients. They won't put every single client into it because some clients are anti-crypto or maybe they're very conservative, but they're increasingly putting it across big chunks of their book, uh, which is great to see. And is that replacing equities? Is it replacing metals or great, great thought or bonds? Obviously not. I think it's mostly replacing equities. I think it's filling the same bucket as sort of high growth equities in these portfolios, right? Riskier assets. Um, A few people are sort of fracturing their gold exposure, breaking it in half. Uh, I was talking to an advisor earlier today who's done some of that and allocating to gold and Bitcoin instead of just gold. It's kind of of funny though, right? That they're, they're looking at as uh, more of a, of a, of a, you know, to juice up your equity exposure than gold, which has been, you know, the narrative uh, for so many uh, issuers in this space and market participants yeah. you know, over the last few years. You think the drop gold campaign of Grayscale. Um, but what's really happening is people are, are dropping some some high growth equities that's instead right. of that's, gold. That's right. Drop Tesla. <laughs> should uh, you drop, you should drop, yeah, drop QQQ. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> you know, I think it makes some sense. I mean, when you think about it from a portfolio construct as opposed to a fundamental attribute construct, it's so much more volatile than gold. It has so much more upside. It looks to me like gold in the 1970s, right? Gold went up 1,300% in the 1970s. It was enormously volatile during that decade. It, it regularly moved 3 plus percent a day. That sounds like Bitcoin. So maybe it's replacing gold from the 1970s. But I think most people are just are looking at the volatility and the growth potential and saying, I'm going to take some of my growth portfolio and allocate it to this new sort of technological innovation that is changing the game. And I think that's a fine way to think about it. No, it makes a lot of sense. And it's not it's not all that surprising. OK, so maybe we can just think about uh, where we go from here. What are you anticipating, obviously, Something that was brought up a lot in Miami was the potentiality of Ether funds getting approved. Uh, I think you put it at 50-50 by May. Um, and then, you know, definitely, I mean, maybe by the end of the year, 75%, something like that. Um, but aside from that, how do you, what, what, what is going to happen um, in terms of how is this industry, the asset management corner of crypto going to grow? What are you anticipating? Yeah. I mean, first and foremost, the Bitcoin ETFs are going to grow. I still think that's by far and away the largest story. Uh, If you look at the gold ETFs, it didn't hit peak flow for something like 17 years. Um, Right. These are multi-year stories. We were just talking about how it's not even available at the largest wealth management platforms. Like the doors open a crack and we're celebrating, but it has to swing all the way open before we feel the full weight of it. And uh, we feel how it impacts the supply-demand dynamic. So the biggest story in crypto asset management is going to be Bitcoin. Now, it may not get the headlines because the new exciting thing is ETH, right? ETH 
popped over 3K, the ETH trade is being put out by multiple Wall Street firms as the next big thing. I think it's, as you mentioned, possible by the May deadline and probable by end of the year. That's my gut. Um, but I still think Bitcoin is the largest story. The other things you're going to see, you know, I mentioned the ETF innovation engine never gets hungry. Uh, it's always grinding. Um, you're going to see covered call strategies on Bitcoin and momentum strategies on Bitcoin and the financialization of that market space. But the the big dog that you shouldn't keep your eye off of are these new Bitcoin ETFs that you know are trading billions of dollars a day and buying 10 times the amount of Bitcoin that's being produced by mining. I mean, I think over time, that just becomes a really strong dynamic in the market that's going to be you know hard to keep down. How esoteric can we get, Matt? Can we, you know, quadruple uh, levered uh, long Bitcoin <laughs> ETFs? Can we, you know, maybe a Bitcoin volatility ETF? How how weird is this going to get? It's going to get weird. It's going to get weird. <laughs> Absolutely. You'll get, yeah, levered momentum, you know, vol hedged. You're going to get all of that. And, um, and all those funds will find their own uses. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that's, that's what we see in all of these. And markets. not all will succeed. I mean, you'll probably see a, a bit of a experimental period. That's right. Yeah. The ETF game is very much a throw spaghetti on the wall game and see mm -hmm. what sticks. It's clear that these Bitcoin ETFs stuck. I don't know if all 10 of them will survive. Some of them may be shut down. Um, but we'll see. Yeah. We'll see some interesting ideas. We'll see some crazy ideas. I'm hopeful we'll see Bitcoin in asset allocation funds uh, as, a, as a trend. So, yeah, stay tuned. It's going to be exciting. How can it be incorporated maybe into other funds um, where maybe you, do, you, do you have a, 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 a fund that has crypto and equities or something like that? Like, Yeah, I think you're going to see that already. You know, I tweeted about this earlier over in Canada. Mm -hmm in the uh, Fidelity's asset allocation funds, which blend stocks, bonds, et cetera. In their conservative fund, they now have a 1% allocation to Bitcoin. In really? their conservative fund. And in their aggressive fund, it's 3.3%. And these are the funds that people buy with their retirement savings. Sure. Right? That's these are the wild. funds people buy. Yep. Yeah. Conservative. Conservative. This is why 1%. we have you on to edify us. I had no idea. <laughs> when that comes to the attention. U.S., you know, it's, it's Katie bar the Katie bar the door because those are those are black holes for assets, right? Money goes in those funds, oh, and it never and leaves. That's it for that's forty it. some odd years. That's 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 it. That's exactly right. And if it's happening in Canada, you know they were two years ahead of us on a spot Bitcoin ETF. It's going to happen here in the U.S. And the, in the end, the reason it's going to happen is because Bitcoin is great in a portfolio context. It's not correlated. Mm. Uh, it's liquid. You can rebalance. It's great. So I think you're going to see that already. If you go on Bloomberg, you can see it appearing in more and more funds. I think it's it's north of 25 funds that have invested in these Bitcoin ETFs already, and that will be that'll be hundreds, right? Hundreds um, in the next few years. Yes. Yeah. Because where else can you find an asset with high return potential? low correlation to everything else and that's liquid it's just a very rare asset so people are going to want to take a small allocation whether that's individuals or that's funds well said 
Well, thank you so much for joining the program. Really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks for having me. Loved it. Of course. Of course. This was fantastic. Thank you so much. And The Scoop will be back for you again with another great guest. Have an awesome day. Thank mm-hmm. you.